I love that introduction. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a wonderful day to be with you. And uh, welcome to those online. I don't always do that when I get to speak. But you're stuck with me again today. When the pastor goes on vacation, he's got to find someone who's willing uh, to take this place. And I enjoy it. I appreciate it. Uh, it is an honor. One of my brothers out here in the audience said, am I going to preach today? And I said, no, I don't like to say preaching. I like to say sharing God's word. Uh, I like to say investigating the Bible. I say preaching for at home for my wife. And she always appreciates it. Right, honey? You can ask her. I'm teasing her. She's my wonderful support. And uh, when I get to an illustration later, I've already run this by her, so I'll make sure I do the right thing. Happy Independence Day, a day of freedom, uh, an amazing day. And I don't think it's, it, it gets short shrift in the Christian church in America but sometimes we're a little bit conflicted on how we support it, how we appreciate it, respect it, whatever. But we are a nation that has been given so many blessings because our founding was under the auspices of God. We invited God to come and rule and be a part of our nation. And sadly, we see it slipping away all around us. But it is a day to give thanks for the freedom we have to be able to worship our Heavenly Father. Our nation gives us that privilege, and it is a privilege because there are parts around the world that they can't do it. And I think of what Paul wrote in Galatians 5. He said, For you were called to freedom, but do not use freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another with love. What a fitting verse for the church to be able to honor and respect what Independence Day, what our Day of Freedom really is about. And we're so grateful. I asked Jerome last week if he would like me to continue in the series on John, and he said that would be fine. And it was interesting. I'd started working on my next sermon if I have the opportunity, and uh, the notes really dovetailed very wonderfully, I think, with what we're going to cover today. But before I do that, I want to give an illustration. Pardon me, I don't usually use my phone, but I got this just this morning from a devotion. And this is an illustration mainly for fellows. Uh, ladies, I'm not trying to exclude you. I've got one just for you later that us guys don't understand as well, so I'll point that one out in a little bit. But for those of you that remember the baseball player Kirby Puckett, I grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, my team, the Brewers, played the Minnesota Twins many times. Kirby Puckett broke my heart so many times. But yet I loved and respected him because he had such an energy. He did everything full bore. He never slowed down. This is a true illustration of what baseball meant to him and what he experienced when he thought he had gotten to the pinnacle. In 1987, the Minnesota Twins baseball star, Kirby Puckett, saw a childhood dream come true when he led his team to a World Series championship. Greg Gagne, the Twins shortstop, described the scene in the clubhouse after their win. He related the hugging, the shouting, the laughing, the obligatory dousing of champagne over the players' heads, and the presentation of the trophy. But the memory that would stick with him forever, he said, took place 10 minutes into the celebration when he nor noticed the normally ebullient pocket sitting silently on a stool away from everyone else. 
Gagne wove his way through the media players and coaches, sat down beside Puckett and asked him, what was he thinking about? With deep sadness in his eyes, Puckett said, if this is all there is to it, life is pretty empty. Do we relate to that sometimes? We pursue things that we think are so important and we find out later, maybe they aren't. We live in a blessed nation and we've asked for and God has given us so much favor. You may have a wonderful home, a loving family, and yet the things we sometimes pursue in this world are not nearly as important. And I believe that's what Jesus was imparting to the disciples. And what's really interesting is in this interchange in the, in the rest of uh, John chapter 16, we're going to segue from what Jerome talked about last week and, and finish chapter 16 today, hopefully, and look at, it seems that the lights had begun to turn on for the disciples. He would speak in parables and they'd look at each other and say, what's he talking about? And Jesus would say, well, here, let me share with you what I meant. Sometimes they were befuddled, they were amused, they were unsure. But at the end of this interchange, we're going to see something change. Because they say, oh, now we understand what he's saying. Kirby Puckett reached a pinnacle in his life and he found it wasn't really as rewarding as he thought it might be. But Jesus told his disciples what would await them and they finally began to understand. Let's go back to the, uh, the end of last week's message. Jerome was uh, wrapping up with verses 15 and 16 in John 16. And in John, six, uh, John 16, verse 15, Jesus said, All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. I'm going to read the first part here in the King James. I wanted to go back to the old texts. Jesus then said, In a little while you shall not see me. And again, a little while you shall see me, because I go to the Father. You will see me again. He promised them, he assured them. And if you have those marginal notes in your Bible, certain translations try to give you a heads up of what's coming next. My Bible, it said, uh, the disciples' grief will turn to joy. Okay, so the writer, the man who compiled all this said, here, let's give you a heads up. Here's what Jesus is trying to help them understand. Verse 17. Then said some of the disciples among themselves, What is this that he says unto us, A little while, and you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he says? A little while. We cannot tell what he is saying. Do you understand it? Do I understand it? Well, there are times I think all of us probably don't understand it. Earlier in the book of John, John 10, verse 10, it's one of those memory verses that probably most of us have embedded in our thinking. John 10, 10, Jesus said, The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I come that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Life. And yet there are times, in so, so many times in a Christian's life, where we think like Kirby was thinking, is this it? What am I missing? What does God intend for me? What is the purpose, the plan? How come in this life I struggle, and yet God says that he wants to give me this life, the abundant life? 
I just came across this in the last few months in some of my Bible study that that Greek word is so rich and so wonderful. The word life is from a Greek word which is zoe, Z-O-E would be the transliteration into English. And that word translated life means life in the absolute sense of life as God possesses it, as God has it. Everyone who is breathing has life in the sense of our physical existence. Amen. Hallelujah. Because as sometimes people will say, well, how are you doing today? Well, I'm, I'm right side up. That's good. Okay, yeah. There are days we appreciate that. So we have life, we have breath. But Jesus came not only to save us from the torment of eternal hell, but also to give us this zoe, this God life, that Jesus said he wants us to have in abundance. And whenever we find ourselves thinking that we don't have a lot or we are missing something, or here was a man at the pinnacle of his sport who sat down and said, is this it? God wants us to know there is something more. But he also wants us to recognize that we have things now. The life, the true life that God has already imparted to us, if we've answered the call and we've accepted his life and the Holy Spirit now lives in us, that life that awaits us isn't just in heaven. Oh, yes, we'll fully possess it in heaven. But Jesus was telling his disciples, he wanted them to know it's, it's present with us. In every born-again Christian, it's a part of who we are. And you know who wants to hide that from us, lie to us about it? Satan every day wants us to disbelieve that beautiful truth. And that's what Jesus is going to share with his disciples as we unpack that together. The way we lose our life is if we deny the thoughts, emotions, or actions that are contrary to God. That is the only way, excuse me. We have to deny those physical things, these impediments in our physical lives, the things that distract us or take us away because Jesus said, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. That's life. That's the zoe. That's the true abundant life that he wants all of us to have. But sometimes we struggle with that. Paul said in First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, First Corinthians 2 and verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When we take on the insight of the Holy Spirit, we can understand those things, and then the life that Jesus offered his disciples, he offers to us, is understood because it's now given a spiritual context, because God says, I will give you my insight you will be able to understand and see the way I see things. There's an admonition in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2 that sometimes the word of God does not have its impact in our lives because it's not mixed or the right translation there, I think, is combined with faith because our faith combined with that knowledge is what causes us to live that new way. And that's what Jesus was telling the disciples, as they gathered here, as they were beginning to understand that they only had Jesus with them for a short time, and something dramatic, life-changing, was going to take place. 
And as they looked at each other and said, what does he mean that he's here for a while, but then we won't see him, but then we will see him again? Because they were still trying to wrap their human minds around what Jesus was imparting to them. But the Holy Spirit was present, and it was going to give them insight. Because as Jerome said last week, the disciples we see after the day of Pentecost were so different from the ones we saw before. Because they had received the Holy Spirit and it had changed and transformed them. Now I want to go back to John 16. Back to the story of what we've been covering the last few weeks. So John 16, going back to verse 19 this time. It says, Jesus knew that they were wondering among themselves. They were desirous to ask him and said unto him, said unto them, excuse me, Jesus speaking to the disciples, do you inquire among yourselves of what I said, a little while you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall? And then he gives them the good old famous words of verily, verily in the old King James, and it means truly, truly. And when he says it twice, he's emphasizing this is the truth. The Son of God, the Son of Man is going to impart to you the truth. So truly, truly, Verse 20, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful for a while, he was saying. But your sorrow will be turned into joy, for a woman when she is in travail has sorrow because her hour is come. And I'm reading this from the good old King James. Sorry about that. It's going to lose a little bit for our modern understanding. What he said is her sorrow... As she sorrows in travail, her hour is come. As soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish. For joy that a man is born into the world. Okay, mothers, daughters, those that have given birth to children, and I okayed this with my wife. I can kind of go into this a little bit. I don't know what that means, okay? But I was with my wife three times as she gave birth to our three children. And a couple were pretty tough. She'll say all three were. I think two were pretty tough for her. Obviously, I was only there as a support, right? Okay. But it was tough. It was very difficult. But the joy of that birth so transformed her. I saw the, the difficulty, the pain, the struggle turned to joy and excitement. In fact, when our first one was born, as she was just coming down from this, the pain and all the hormones and everything that was going on. I better stop there, I know, dear. Uh, we heard a baby cry several rooms away. We had a birthing room back in 1984. It was one of the first hospitals in the area that had it. And uh, she said, oh, that's our baby. John, go check on him. I said, no, no, dear, it's not our son. It's just another baby. I'm, oh, honey, I, I can tell I'm the mother. I think it's our son. I said, okay, honey. I thought, well, I'll placate her. And I, I shuffled down the hallway, and sure enough, it was our son. And she heard the cry, and she knew it was our son. And she looked at me after I confirmed that, and she said, don't ever doubt me again, honey. <laughs> and I said, yes, dear, you've taught me again. But for you ladies, you understand what that was like. You went through that. that Jesus is imparting something that's so amazing, that's so powerful, and it it teaches the lesson of, yes, there are things sometimes that are very painful and difficult, but the joy will supplant it and replace it 
And that's what God wants us to see. That's what he wanted his disciples to see. You now, therefore, may have sorrow. Back to verse 22. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy and your joy no man can take from you. You know, Jesus, the Bible tells us, endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. And there are many times in life that I paused and I thought, how can you be joyful about enduring suffering? And I'm always taken back to that statement about Jesus. It's in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew ahead of time what he had to go through. And yet it says that he endured it because he knew the joy that would be on the other end. Is that us? Is that the way Jesus wanted his disciples to understand it? There's a verse that struck me probably over 40 years ago, and I was going through one of those difficult times, and I came, up, uh, came upon the verse in Proverbs 13 and verse 12, which says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. And there are times in life that hope is very much deferred. And we're waiting, we're hanging, and we're asking God, where is the hopefulness in this situation? And God was telling his disciples, he tells us, that if you hang in there, the joy will come. It's as sure as, and then he gave that illustration. Continuing in John 16, verse 23, Jesus says, and in that day you shall ask me nothing, for verily, verily, again back to the truly, truly I say unto you, whosoever shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. I see a transition occur here, because remember when Jesus taught his disciples, this is how we pray, our Father who art in heaven, okay? He always directed them to the Father, but now he's telling them, when you come before the Father, and yes, you make the request to the Father, but you ask in my name, he said. Because remember, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the one that ever lives to make intercession for us. That's Hebrews 7 and verse 25. He lives forever to intercede for us. It's not that he's not mindful, he is. When we bring our petitions before our Heavenly Father, Jesus is right there, it says, at his right hand interceding for us. That's what Jesus does on our behalf. And that's what he was reminding the disciples. These things then, verse 25, I have spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time comes when I shall no more speak to you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And Jesus knew that that would be upsetting, that that would be hurtful to some. 
Remember, they had said, what does he mean? He says he's going to leave, but then he's going to come back. It didn't make sense yet because, remember, they petitioned one of the last things they asked Jesus was, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought Jesus was the deliverer for their time. They thought he was going to bring back the kingdom of Israel, man's kingdom. Jesus said, no, you don't understand what you're asking. God's kingdom is far greater than that, and it's going to come and accomplish the entire earth. When I leave the world, Jesus said, I'm going to come. I'm going to go, excuse me, to the Father, but I will come again. Verse 29 of John 16. Then his disciples said, at last. There's a transition here again. The disciples now, the ones that said, what is he talking about? What does he mean? I don't get this. It says, at last you are speaking plainly and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything and there's no need to question you. From this we believe that you did come from God. Jesus said, do you finally believe? I think there are times in our lives as we walk with the Lord that God in his love and his mercy looks at it and says, but do you believe me? Do you trust me? I've said this. I've assured you. I've revealed myself to you, but do you believe me? The time is coming as Jesus wraps up this chapter. He says, but, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I've told you all this so that you may, may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And he assured the disciples that just as he overcame the world, they would be able to do that as well. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that even though the tumult the struggles, the difficulties, the attacks that they were going to go through would be difficult, that he had an answer for it on the other side. As we live in this world, and sometimes we see all the, all the trial and difficulty, as we see our Christian brothers and sisters in parts of the world being singled out and being attacked and murdered and killed, and they do it, in many cases, joyfully because they know that there's a gift on the other side. Because they've had imparted to them this Zoe life that we possess now, but we will fully embrace it when we're in the kingdom. I want to leave as, as kind of a defining statement that Paul makes in the New Testament about what Jesus was getting at. And I think what he revealed to his disciples, and they were beginning to understand it, is wonderfully put by the Apostle Paul in a, a short section of verses in Ephesians chapter 1. But before I read those verses, I want to give you the background to this. I recently came across this. It was a Bible teacher. Uh, he had a deep and good understanding of the Greek language. And so he begins this background before I read the verses. He said, it was well known among those of us who were Greek students that one of the most eloquently written passages in the Greek New Testament of the Bible was a passage written by Paul in the first chapter of the letter written to the Ephesians. And it spans 12 verses, but it is one continuous thought, basically one long run-on sentence, 
and it is a literary masterpiece in ancient literature. One commentator described it this way. This sentence begun by blessed be or praise be to God rolls on like a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. It's only 202 words and many modifiers which they form, arranged like shingles on a roof or like steps on a stairway, are like prancing steeds pouring forward with impetuous speed. That's the way he describes it. In other words, Paul was so moved by the Spirit, he wanted to convey what he understands you and I possess now, this Zoe life that Jesus so desperately wanted his disciples to understand. And they followed him around. They enjoyed the miracles. Some of it was intriguing. Some of it was upsetting. Some of it, I'm sure, they just laughed because he was sticking it to the Jewish leaders as well as the Roman leaders. But they didn't always get it. But near the end here, chapter 16, was beginning to dawn on them. But this is the way I think Paul is summing up what Jesus was conveying. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. And I believe this is the NIV. Uh, if you want to follow along, if you have it, but I would encourage you to go back and read this several times because it has such an impact. Paul writes, Ephesians 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Boy, there's not much he leaves out there, is there? It says we possess all of this because of what Christ has done for us. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included. Oh, I love that statement, and it means so much more than English included. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. We all have been sealed in God's sight through Christ. We have a special mark on us. We especially belong to him. We were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We're God's possession. He's marked us with a seal. He's given us all these blessings. And so Jesus told his disciples, 
you know, I won't be here for a while, but that's okay. Hang in there because I'm coming back. And they said, finally, finally, we're beginning to understand what he's been telling us. Oh, they didn't understand the fullness yet, but they were going to because Jesus was going to impart it to them. So we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It marks God's ownership of us. And it is a deposit of our future inheritance into the kingdom of God. But that Zoe life that God has offered us, promised us, and given to us, he said, it's not just in the heavenly realm. It's not just for the future. I have now made that deposit in you now. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Those times when we feel that our life isn't as abundant as we think it should be, go back to your Heavenly Father, go to your Savior, go to the Holy Spirit and say, God, please show me what this Zoe life is. Show me what this divine, imparted life that you've given to all of us who are your children because you're already experiencing it and God wants you to experience it all the way through. I will end with a prayer, and then I'm going to transition to our communion today. Father, what a blessing, what a tremendous gift to know that you not only have given us life and life abundantly, it is the down payment, and that sounds so weak and so small. It's not just a down payment. It is the guarantee of eternal life that's already been given to us that you said has been imparted, and we live with it. Let us live as those people that have been given that eternal life and know that because we're your children, we've been signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus that we have a future in your heavenly realm. We praise you. We thank you. And Father, we're going to be reminded about that as we take these elements that represent what Jesus Christ has done for us. And he said, as oft as we would do this, do it in remembrance of me. We thank you, we praise you, we ask it always through the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, in his name, amen.